Hello, and welcome to episode five of Making Sense, a Eurodollar University production. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and I am coming to you over the podcasting channels of iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. For those of you joining the simulcast on YouTube, you'll be able to see the graphs we are referencing, as well as the articles that Jeff has written this week. Joining me, as always, the Earl of the Eurodollar, the head of global research, the Chief Investment Officer of Alhambra Investments, Jeff Snyder. Good morning, Jeff. Great to see you. Good morning, Emil. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. You have written some good articles this week. They're very timely. Articles that we may remember for a very long time because it was a special week when oil went negative. We're going to talk about two broad things today. We're going to talk about oil and myths but let us start with oil. Yeah, I think it's interesting that, you know, that's what we left off on last week when we got together. We were talking about oil back then too. And then all of a sudden, you know, just as we had finished up the podcast, almost, you know, as soon as it was produced and finished and published, the oil market seemed to go haywire. And you had this, you know, this wild trading where the front month contract had gotten all the way down to, you know, minus $40 a barrel. And, I, mean, you're, I think you're exactly right. This, that's, that's something that's going to stick with people for a very long time. And we may never see something like that again, although it could happen next, next month. But right. <laughs> uh, at least, you know, in, th in this period of time, we may never see a, a negative oil price like that again. So, but Jeff, you know, that's the whole point of these last 12 years. We keep saying that we may never, ever see negative interest rates, negative nominal interest rates. We may never see collateralized rates go for more than uncollateralized borrowing. We may never see negative oil. We may never see negative um, collateralized rates in the repo market, which I believe also happened this week. We keep saying it. I think we should open ourselves to the possibility of Alice in Wonderland for as long as this Eurodollar disorder continues. Yeah, and I think you're exactly right. And that's why, you know, we, you and I talking out before the show, we, we just we, we want to go back to what happened last week and really make sure everybody understands what happened. And then, then you know, go, go through why it was very important. And really, it wasn't the negative oil price so much that was um, shocking is what happened uh, um, on Monday, which was April 21st. It was what happened the next day on April or April 20th. Monday was April 20th. Tuesday was April 21st. So negative oil on April 20th. And then the, the curve collapsed on April 21st, which was the more important thing. So why don't we just go right into uh, what happened last, uh, what happened on earlier this week. And, and for those of you not joining us on the YouTube simulcast, we're going to be looking at an article that's titled, What Was Monday's Negative Oil and Why It Was Overshadowed on Tuesday? You can find this article at Alhambra Investments. And if we go right to it, Let's start out with, there it is, the big one. And that's what got everybody talking for a very good reason. I mean, you, you know, you see it, it, oil price dropped to around minus $40 a barrel. That's going to get everybody's attention. So why was it negative and what drove it to be negative? And we have to start out with something called a roll yield. Now, a roll yield is just a, a fundamental part of how the futures market works. Uh, all sorts of speculators, whether it be producers, money managers, deep pools of funds, they want to be invested in the oil market 
And the way that they do it is through this, through this future market, uh, WTI, which is the, the West Texas Intermediate Benchmark. But a future market obviously means that there's contracts that are staggered out at various months into the future. So if you're invested in, say, May 2020 oil, what that means is you have the right to buy oil in May 2020. But in this kind of a commodity future, unlike, say, Eurodollar futures, it also, the contract also obligates you to buy oil, not only to buy, to, 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 when you buy the oil, to take delivery of the oil on expiration in May 2020. So when the, when the May 2020 contract goes off the board in April, what that does is it sets up your right to buy the oil in April to be delivered in May. So there's going to be a tanker truck or a, you know, a pipeline shipment of, of crude oil coming to Cushing, Oklahoma with your name on it. If you're holding that May 2020 contract at expiration. Now what normally happens is speculators and all sorts of money managers who want to stay invested in oil, they'll sell out of that contract, that front month contract, so as to avoid the delivery requirement. Because you know they're not really invest, they're not really interested in, in in obtaining oil and using it and sending it along somewhere. They just want to be invested or hedged in the price of oil. Now, when the curve is in backwardation, what that means is that the front month price is ahead of the the uh, the prices further down the curve. So, if the May 2020 price is thirty dollars a barrel, for example, then the June 2020 price is a little bit less. And what that does is it helps out this 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 roll yield this process of uh, efficiently moving speculators down further into the future so they don't have to take delivery because there's a little financial incentive to doing this role. Because the contract of the next month is less than the contract of the front month, the price-wise, then there's a little bit of extra money to just roll forward, not take delivery, not disrupt everything. It's the, the same barrel of oil and in the first month, it's a little bit uh, worth a little bit more than the following months. So you sell high and buy low, the roll yield. And it gets it gets much more complicated than that because there's you know obviously there's there's further months down the curve. You get to put there's all sorts of gamma strategies, delta strategies, how the curve behaves in certain months. You know, so, but you know by and large, when the curve is in backwardation, it's a very fluid situation. That allows easy easy access to the market. It allows the market to perform and behave in the way that we expect it to behave. Now, when the curve flips into contango, which is the opposite case where the futures prices go up the further, further out in time, that creates a negative roll yield situation. So if you're a speculator looking for, you know, just to, to, to be uh, invested in the price of oil through these futures contracts, you don't really want delivery of oil, that creates a bit of a conundrum for you because now you have to pay more to roll into the future. So that kind of drives some people out of the market, which is one of the mechanisms that, that hopes to balance the, the supply and demand or whatever imbalance is causing the contango in the marketplace to begin with. But more than that, it, you know, it creates this kind of a bottleneck situation where if you have a lot of people who are in the front month contract and don't want delivery, and then the contango starts to steepen out into the next month, you know, what do you do? What, if you, what do you do if you're holding a May 2020 contract as we saw you know, last week? And the contract, you know, and the contango, the steepness in the contango curve got to be so extreme that even before Monday, even before April 20th, there was a massive negative roll yield. Well, it kind of, it kind of herds everybody together so that everybody's just waiting for, you know, there's got to be something good that's going to happen that's going to trigger us to be able to get out of this May contract to sell and roll forward. Even if we have to pay a, a, some kind of a premium, hopefully it won't be much of a premium. 
So they're just waiting until the final days to get out of it simply as a behavioral uh, risk aversion to loss, to actualizing that loss. Exactly. And, you know, when it gets to be that bad, it's just, well, you know, it's almost like a fingers crossed strategy, right? Well, expiration is on Tuesday. So <laughs> let's just hope that something goes our way. And I think, you know, it's, it's really important to understand why I think so many people were in the May 2020 contract to begin with. I think there was a pervasive belief that this was, you know, the V-shaped recovery. Everything was going to go really good. You know, we're going to have a, we're going to have the economic disruption. We're going to have the dislocation based on COVID-19, but then everything was going to go right. You know, everything was going to go perfectly once we get past that short-term disruption. And so I think a lot of speculators were betting on, of course, Jay Powell and monetary stimulus, fiscal stimulus, that would create all sorts of, of channels for the economy, the global economy, to go back to normal very quickly. And so you buy into the to the May 2020 contract because it was a, such a massive discount to the rest of the curve. Un, that's the steepness in the contango, under the impression that that contango would disappear as the rest of the market started to price in this this very optimistic future. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. If you look over here on this particular chart of the history here, especially over here in the early part of May, the contango in the front did compress. In fact, it got down to, you know, it had been as much as I think $15, $16, which is enormous. And it had compressed down to four, five, six, seven dollars somewhere in that range. And so it looked like it was, okay, this is gonna happen. We bought the May contract on the cheap, and now it's, it looks like we'll be able to roll at a, at a reasonable negative roll yield when the, when the May contract goes off the board. And that would be fine, except here we go, uh, you know, somewhere around May 13th, middle May, that part of the that part of the month, all of a sudden it starts to reverse again, where contango comes back in the curve, the, the negative roll yield builds up to even, even larger. And you get the situation where this is expiration here, where I've got it pointed here. That's the expiration for the May contract. So you've either got to get out of it by that day, or you've got to take delivery. And oh, by the way, that's the other factor, Emil. I know you know this well, that you know storage space in Oklahoma, there's nothing left. So if if you're that's that's your other option, you can either sell out of the May contract and roll into the June. And if it's too much of a of a roll, negative roll yield to do that, you could take delivery and store it. There are, there are different ways you could you can arrange for that to happen. It's an additional cost, obviously, but it's better than you having to show up in Oklahoma and take delivery of, of crude oil. But so, okay, so we had this weird, weird situation where because of the economic shutdown, lack of demand, oil is not flowing the way it used to. Storage, which is enormous in Oklahoma, is all used up. You know, there's, there, aren't even, there aren't even spare pipelines available to, to, to dump crude on. So you have all of these speculators who are betting on Jay Powell, getting it right, and the oil market moving toward Jay Powell's view that this is all going to be a, a temporary nothing. Then that reversed where okay, the market starts to get a little bit pessimistic and now everybody's stuck in a May contract where they, they can't offload their, their obligation either through rolling it into the June contract or through storage. And that's why the oil price went negative. They could offload it by, well, that's, I understand that they can't offload it by taking physical delivery because the tanks are full and the pipelines are full. But what do you mean when you say that they couldn't offload it financially why couldn't they roll it is it because they didn't want to realize the terrible losses or is it that the people 
who were buying didn't want to buy because it, it then they would have to deliver or right because they somebody has to have somebody has an obligation the contract's been written so it's going to happen somewhere or the other and so you know if you're if you're looking to sell out of the contract to, to avoid your obligation you're you're giving it to somebody else and what the market was saying is nobody else wanted that obligation because they weren't willing to speculate on the future they were they weren't willing to come in even if you're offering you know a huge premium which is what the, the, the negative uh, oil price actually was. You're saying, I'm going to pay you to take oil off my hands. The market was saying, we don't want it. We, we just don't want it. There's, there's nothing here that will, that will create the incentives for us to remove the obligation that you foolishly pursue. And that's, that's really the point about the negative oil was that people were pursuing that strategy thinking that Contango would compress and everything would go back to normal really quickly when in fact it reversed and it reversed, you know, again, in, in a way that shows the market was very fragile and it created this bottleneck where they, nobody had a realistic and uh, easy way to offload these obligations. And, and you can go right now to the CME website and you can uh, look up light, sweet, crude, WTI, and you'd be able to see something similar taking place with the June contract right now. And I'm sharing my screen with everyone. And you can see that Contango, the contract right now for June is going for $16.50. One month later, it's worth $5 more, that same barrel. And then about a year later, one year later, it, the price of oil is worth double. But I think this is where the more important message is, is in that one year, two year later, yes, as crazy as uh, paying for storage and oil, barrel of oil costing negative $50, that will probably resolve itself in the next few months in some way. But what may not resolve itself is the long term. Yeah, and that's, I think that's the important point. And that was what, you know, what we're talking about with Tuesday's trading overshadowed the negative oil price on Monday's trading. It was really about that, which exactly what you're talking about. When you go back to looking at the curve, it's this part here. It's the intermediate term. We get, you know, the short run, as we talked about in our last episode, you and I, Emil, the short run's all about chaos. We don't really know what's going to go on. I mean, it, it's, it's going to be a, a short, it's going to be a very sharp disruption in oil markets and the economy and in pretty much every market, we, we know this is going to be bad, but we don't, you know, that's again, the, the optimism, the optimistic V shaped case was that this disruption would be short lived. It would go back to normal relatively quickly. And what we're seeing in the oil market here, especially in this part of the curve is that no, it, it doesn't look like it's going to be, uh, it's not going to be a, a short lived thing. There's going to be problems that linger further into the future. And we're talking about oil. We're talking about, you know, obviously demand for it as well as the supply of it. But again, as we talked about last week, you know, the, the market here is factoring supply cuts that have already been announced and supply cuts that are going to continue. So this collapse in the, in the curve, especially out into next year, under $30 a barrel tells you that the market is starting to see that this is not a short term thing. This is not a short term disruption that will so easily go back to normal. In fact, what we're really talking about is long term demand destruction. It's starting to get priced into the oil market with on Tuesday, where you see here these other contracts, these further out contracts down the curve started to collapse in price, not just with 
negative oil. Before this started, when we discussed this last week, the quote unquote normal price of oil, and that's not really the normal price of oil, but it was around $50 for the same period, about two years out from now, 50-ish dollars. And that was the price that a barrel of oil would clear that would be reflective of the level of economic activity. You know, you're willing, if you're a producer, a manufacturer, you're willing to pay for a certain amount of energy because you believe that whatever good you're producing will be demanded at that time. And so what oil is showing us is that before the virus hit in mid to late February, that clearing cost of what producers, not producers, but what people will pay for oil because of a certain perception of what demand will be for their product was around 50. But now, now we're seeing it's 30. So much less end user demand, much less end user consumption on a global economic basis. And people who may not know, I think people intuitively know that oil is very important, but oil is the largest commodity market. Uh, and it sits, as you wrote in your piece, it sits at the intersection of supply, demand, financing, and the real economy. It's a two, based on demand from last year and prices, average prices for last year, oil is a $2.4 trillion market. And for comparison, steel is $1.4 trillion, and gold is $0.2 trillion. So there's a completely different magnitude when we're talking about the oil market. And it's very serious. There's a lot of money. There's a lot of serious players. And that's a very great, very good indication of what economic activity may be in the future. If you fact, that's just outright uh, demand and prices. But if you factor in derivatives, oil is at $35 trillion worth of derivatives. And gold comes in second place at $11 trillion. So this is a critical market with a lot of money behind it saying the medium term out through 2022 economic activity, there's not going to be a rebound to levels that we were experiencing in February. Yeah, I know, in a lot of ways, it's really simple. Ask yourself this question. You know, if you go back to the late 2018 when everything was supposedly really well, what if somebody told you that the oil price in 2021 would be under $30 a barrel? What would you think about the situation at that time? You would have thought something bad or something bad happened in between. Something really bad must have happened in between. If oil price into 2021 was under $30 a barrel, when back then it was projected to go up and up and up into the hundreds again. So, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an extremely important indication, especially not just, you know, the negative oil was, you know, again, about the, the chaos in the short run, but then the collapse in the curve further down, which is saying, that chaos isn't isn't strictly short run chaos. It's gonna it's gonna bleed into the intermediate term, which is a as a, a pretty severe negative indication. Speaking of the real economy, I want to transition to the opposite of reality, or that that gray area between reality and unreality, myth and myths. And the, several of your articles had that theme running through them. And I think the one that we would want to lead off with is the 
fallen kings and the bond throne of collateral. Jeff, what was that article about? How does it uh, relate to myths? It was, you know, it's funny, a couple of quotes that we were throwing around beforehand, you know, talking about myth versus reality. And one that one of our colleagues put up was from T.S. Eliot called, and he says, uh, humankind cannot bear very much of reality. You know, <laughs> how true is that? I mean, just, just what we were talking about in the introduction here, about all of these things that we keep seeing, that we keep shaking our heads, like, no, nah, we'll never see that again. And then not only do we see it again, it, it's surpassed by something else. So, you know, it, it gets back to one of the major themes that we talk about, which is, you know, there's something else going on here. Our version of what we're perceiving as to be, or what we're told to perceive as reality must not be the reality that's actually taking place. There's, 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 a, there's a disconnect between what we're taught about how things work and how they must really work. And when we're talking about the Bond Kings, what I mean specifically about Bond Kings is, are these, these, these uh, Bond fund managers that pop up on TV all the time, you know, Bill Gross or Jeffrey Gunlack, you know, there's a bunch of other other ones that they always show up and they're the, they're the face of the bond market. And they're always talking about bonds and the economy in the same way that a central banker is, which blows my mind because the bond market itself is the Fed's biggest critic. The bond market all along has been saying, you know, Janet Yellen, Ben Bernanke, now Jay Powell, you guys have got this all wrong. And what really happened, especially 2017 forward, was this idea that the economy was going to recover finally from 2008 and 2009. And what that would mean was an inflationary breakout, which if we had an inflationary breakout in 2017, 2018, and 2019, as everyone had been predicted, including the bond kings, it would have been a very, very bad place to be in U.S. treasuries, German bonds, JGBs, all these other kinds of safety instruments. And so what that, what that set up was this expectation that the bond kings talked about very, very uh, quite often, that we were going to have this massive bond drop, something like 1994, a real massacre kind of a situation. And in anticipation of that massacre, these bond kings all went short treasuries. And you know, the way you go short treasuries is something called negative duration. We don't need to get into exactly what that is, but that's essentially what it is. What you're saying with the negative duration portfolio is that I believe that Inflation's coming, economic growth is coming, and so why the hell do I want to own treasuries when the world's going to get into a really good place, a real place to take risk? And so that's, that was the position that, that they took in 2017 and 2018. You heard it all the time, interest rates have nowhere to go but up, and they were ready for that situation. The bumper sticker campaign at that time was called Globally Synchronized Growth. And it meant that because all the countries, so many of them were recording positive numbers in GDP terms, that must mean something. And so why would you be long bonds when you can invest in the real economy, which would return a much better percentage? And therefore, presumably, you want to get out of bonds because they're not going to be paying the right amount at the depressionary era that we were just exiting. But as you were writing we were never really going to be exiting. And the bond market was saying it. So it wasn't Jeff Snyder saying it. It was the bond market that was saying, we're not leaving this era of disinflation, depression, this deflation. Right, and what the bond kings were saying was, okay, the curves are flattening. That's, a, that's again, that's, that's a contradictory signal to this idea of an inflationary breakout. But they kept saying, well, the bond market will agree with Jay Powell eventually. 
And it was, okay, it was always a future property. Yes, the bond market disagrees today, but at some point they're going to, the bonds are going to start to be sold because everybody's going to realize that Jay Powell's right and inflation's coming and this is a global boom and why would you possibly want safety to hold safety instruments during that, during that uh, massive boom? And in the article that we're talking about, there's uh, another prominent candidate that uh, is vying for the role of bond king. And this week it was revealed that they unwound their uh, short against treasuries. And you- It only took three years, right? Three years in record high treasury prices to finally capitulate and say, okay, maybe, maybe interest rates aren't going up. <laughs> you know, it's the myth versus reality, right? I mean, the, the myth is so extreme. The myth is so hardened that all of these bond kings keep going back to it as treasuries rally and rally and rally and rally and keep going up. And they have no explanation for why it's going up, why treasury prices are going up and yields are falling. Well, they do. And they say it would have worked. But you know who changed his mind? The center of the monetary universe, this, the central banker of the dollar, Jay Powell, changed his mind. And that's why our position didn't go the way it was supposed to. But in the article, you explain, no, the bond market changed Jay Powell's mind. And then thereafter, the the would-be bond kings followed along or used it as cover to explain why they're unwinding. Yeah, and it's, I, I think I, it's a perfect case of gaslighting. And that's really, what, that's really what we're starting to hear is that, oh, well, we would have had all these things, but Jay Powell changed his mind and started cutting rates. And that's, again, the myth. The myth is that the central bank controls interest rates, not just the federal funds rate, which is within its purview, but all interest rates. And, you know, Alan Greenspan said something the same back when he was talking about his conundrum in 2005 was that they believe that if the Fed sets an interest rate and sets a chart, of course, for inflation, the rest of the treasury market, the rest of the credit markets simply fall in line and obey. Therefore, that myth has been, it won't die. The idea that um, the Fed sets all interest rates, including treasury bond yields, and that if if the treasury market rallied over the last you know, a couple of year, year and a half or so, whatever it's been, it must be because Jay Powell changed his mind when that just is not true. And you can see it right here. The rally in bonds, never mind the collapsing curves that happened during this period, when we we're supposed to be having this inflationary breakout and the bond market was saying, no way, that's the collapsing curve. But the rally in treasuries and other government bonds like German, Germany's government bonds started in early November while the Fed was still hiking. Jay Powell was still talking about this economic boom. He was still talking about how 2019 was going to be full of even more rate hikes than there were in 2018. He was still thinking inflation. Well, bonds were like, no, nah, there's something bad going on here. This is, this is all starting to flip. And that's, that never changed throughout 2019 and into 2020. The bond market was way ahead of where Jay Powell was. So it wasn't the central bank that caused the Treasury rally. It wasn't the central bank's rate cuts that caused the treasury rally. It was whatever was forcing people into treasuries that finally forced Jay Powell to realize we better start cutting rates because things are not going the way we thought that they were going to go. Myths. We've got the Minotaur of Crete, the Monkey King, Odin. Modern times, we've got Kaiser Sose and Bond Kings. And then there's one that's even more powerful, the Greenspan put. You wrote an article on that topic as well. Uh, you called it the Greenspan bell. And you wrote about how 
a very important survey out of Germany, the ZEW. I don't know if you say it ZOO or ZEW, but I can't speak German. But anyway, it's a very important survey. And it speaks to the conditions currently and in the future, both in the heart of the uh, European economy, Germany, as well as for the whole Eurozone. And as you write in the article, they absolutely love the idea of central bank stimulus, and they always react to it so positively. Yeah, it's, it's almost weird, and it, it's almost perfectly Pavlovian. Anytime a central bank does, so we have a massive crisis, a central bank reacts to it, which already shatters the myth to begin with, because you're not supposed to have a crisis. That's the whole point of having a central bank. But you know, we'll set that aside. You know, if we go if we go and look at the history of the ZEW, the sentiment index, which is which asked you know these real economy participants in Germany, and Germany being, as you pointed out, Emil, a very important central uh, central economy, not just for Europe but for the global. It's a global bellwether about you know what are the conditions in the global economy. Well, we can tell from Germany a good you know we have a good idea from Germany about you know what are the tendencies in the global economy. And so they, they survey all of these real economy participants, not just purchasing managers, but actual CFOs, uh, people on the front lines in industries and services, all sorts of places, all, all around the German economy. And yet, you know, here we see in October 2008, which was one of the worst months in financial history outside of the Great Depression, in modern history, certain, certainly, and starting in October 2008, the ZEW zooms forward. What was, was that Germans anticipating a recovery? Well, maybe, but the recovery didn't show up for another, what, seven, eight months further down the road. They obviously jumped the gun, and the reason they jumped the gun was the European Central Bank, along with the Federal Reserve and all a bunch of central banks all over the world, decided to jump in the markets because we had this global financial crisis. So the ZEW was reacting to what central banks were doing, well, about you what they thought was going to happen in the future. You can forgive them in... 2008, you know, not everyone was following your work at the time, and it seemed like some very impressive liquidity programs were being created. So you can forgive them in 2008. What happened in 2011? Yeah, and the same thing, the same exact thing happened in 2011. You know, Europe started to fall into recession. We had another global crisis. It wasn't as well known, and it wasn't it wasn't as acknowledged as, as much as it was. We had another euro dollar event in 2011 that pushed Europe at least to the brink of recession by the late part of November or late part of 2011 and in comes Mario Draghi new to the job and unleashes this flood of quote unquote liquidity in terms of LTROs. And again, the German ZEW sentiment indicator zooms ahead while Europe's actual economy, which you can see in the sentiment and in the situation index falls into recession. So it's a, you know, myth versus reality right here. In the same survey, sentiment gets really, really, really stoked up about whatever a central bank is doing in monetary policy, regardless of whether it has any effect on the current situation. In fact, what we see time and again is that it doesn't. So here's 2009, you know, the ZEW goes up here, the sentiment, while we still have, you know, almost three quarters of a year of one of the nastiest recessions on record. And then again, 2012, it wasn't as bad in terms of recession, but it was longer. It wasn't until early 2013 that Europe actually recovered when the ZEW sentiment index had gone higher in 2011. And now again, um, for April, the, yeah, it's March, 
epic collapse in the sentiment because of what was going on with the economic shutdown of global financial crisis number two. Then in April, I mean, have things gotten better? Well, the ZEW sentiment index jumped 78 points in a single month to be the highest since 2015, 2014. Meanwhile, we're, we're talking about de depression level uh, collapse and, and uh, in GDP and all sorts of other economic accounts. And as we've seen in the oil market where markets are starting to price that this, this short-term this short disruption, no matter how bad it is, it's going to continue into the future. And it's, again, it's, it's myth versus reality. Here's the, we love central banks, regardless of what actually happens in the real economy. Now, what it's, you know what is remarkable about that survey is that the current situation change month to month, right, from March to April, that was the fastest deceleration in the data series history from March to April for the current situation, pessimism. On the, on the optimism, on the other side, looking forward, and to, uh, the sentiment survey, that was the face, fastest improvement in data series history, month to month. And again, to your point, it's just got to be the, the stimulus. Uh, the Greenspan put, the Mario Draghi, anything it takes, we'll take care of it. But, you know, who has been doing this for decades now? is Japan. We can look to Japan and we can see these experiments having been already run. In the early 2000s, as you often write, the, the Federal Reserve sort of laughingly and dismissively uh, reviewed how Japan had been acting during their depression, all the actions that their central bank had done, and they said, we found that wanting we're going to do, uh, do a better job when it's our turn, should it ever happen. So they were very confident. And then it turns out, no, they haven't been as competent uh, as, as Japan. They've been just as incapable of turning the economy around. And in the last article we're going to talk about today, you discuss that that put, that Greenspan put, that central bank to the rescue is not going to help. And we know that because Japan's been doing it for decades. They've been spending as more money than is we can possibly imagine. And how, has, how have equity markets performed over there? Tell us about this article. Yeah, I, I think it's, it, you know, here we have an almost perfect uh, isolated case where we can evaluate exactly what, you know, the Greenspan put is supposed to be about the stock market. Uh, you know, push comes to shove, the Federal Reserve will do whatever it takes to save the stock market. And that's been adapted a little bit and, and transformed a little bit lately where the Fed is, is explicitly promising, you know, hey, we're going to save the corporate bond market, especially junk bonds. We're going to actually buy junk bonds, which is an important part of what's going on in global financial crisis too. You know, you, we talked about this before in terms of repo collateral. So that's, there's a, there's a very important element to this too. But the backup and the Greenspan put, it's simply, you know, if, if the chips are down and things are going wrong, the central bank can start buying stocks or buying corporate bonds, whatever the asset may be, and that will reverse and it will reverse the, the cascade of selling, that will reverse the downdraft, and it will support the market. And that, will, that, that gives us all a lot of comfort to be able to ourselves invest, if not front run the Fed. You hear that all the time, too. If the Fed or the Bank of Japan is buying assets, 
well, then it must be perfectly safe to buy those assets, no matter how ridiculous and absurd those assets are. Because so let's, let's we buy a bunch of junk bonds. Because we implicitly assume that the these central banks of these reserve currencies are central to their financial system. But yeah, that, that's the myth. If they want to support a market, they'll support a market. Therefore, there's no danger in that market. And that's really the point here. The myth is what is actually important in expectations-based policy, which is what every central bank actually operates. They're counting on the market. They're counting on you and me to do their work for them. If you believe in the myth, if you believe that the market is supported by central bank action, then we'll act and there'll never be a need for central bank action. If we all think the market's perfectly safe, why would we ever sell? There'd be no reason to sell. Therefore, it just it works because it works as long as everybody believes in it. But it doesn't work that way, does it? And so when we look at, especially recently uh, in Japan or whether any place else, but Japan's a great example because the central bank, the Bank of Japan, has been buying ETFs and J reads too, but ETFs, you know, they've been exposed to and buying in the stock market for a very long time. And then we get to the, the financial crisis that started to show up in February. You know, by the time the, the, the while the, the Bank of Japan is still buying stocks all along, buying ETFs all along, the market starts to hit a downdraft or hit an air pocket, whatever you want to call it, you know, a liquidation fire sale, a wave of fire sales. They upped their buying. In fact, on March 2nd, the Bank of Japan bought a record amount of ETFs and it was it was in the news. It was in Bloomberg. It was everywhere. Oh, my God. The, you know, the Bank of Japan is going to support the, 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 the Japanese stock market by this record amount of bond buying. And it lasted all of a day. Uh, this right here. This is this is about this is about what you got from uh, Bank in of early Japan. March, early March. And then what happened? Shoot. The market went down again. In fact, it was a 30 percent downdraft from high to low. Which I mean, did the Bank of Japan end it with its, its its when it doubled its record purchases of ETFs on March 19th, or was it the was it the fact that the uh, global market route ended on March 19th everywhere? So, so over the course of a month, February 12th to March 19th, the Nikkei stock index fell 31 percent, let's say, during a time when the Bank of Japan was very publicly blowing the lid off uh, their printing press. The printing press dial was in the red. There was smoke coming out. They were printing money, buying everything. And in return, here you go, 31%. But I know what they're going to say, Jeff. They're going to say it would have been worse. And by the way, it's sort of rebounded since then. So there you go. You're welcome. Yeah, and I know. It's <laughs> but that's the point. You know, is that supporting the market? That's not what we think of when we think of a central bank supporting the market. We don't think of a 31% you know, downside volatility and a partial rebound as supporting the market. And even if you agree that the, they ended the rally here with this record amount of purchases, which doubled the previous rally, if you th even if you think this is what ended the rally, it only ended or ended the route. It only ended the route after a 31% decline. That is not market support. And so when you stop and you think about this from a, you know, a granular perspective and start looking, you know, stop looking at it from 30,000 feet and through the myth, what does the central bank actually do to support the market? Well, it has a list of securities that it can buy. It has a predetermined amounts of what securities it can buy. It doesn't, it doesn't take all of these flood of sell orders that come into brokers and banks all throughout the system. It just steps in according to its list. It has a piece of paper like this that, that the bank desk trades early in the morning. 
and it buys according to that list. And if it wants to change the amounts or what, what securities it can buy in that list, it requires all sorts of legal authorizations and board meetings and board votes and staff presentations. So if the market is melting down and you want the, the central bank to actually start buying more, just buying more, and again, not taking a flood of sell orders, just buying a little bit more to hopefully, to hopefully stop the route, it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen on a minute, ba or minute, minute scale on a you know, minute to minute basis as the market's melting down. It's a, bureaud, a, a rigid bureaucracy that is not set up to, to um, actually support a market in any meaningful sense. All they're doing is buying some shares with the hope that you are comforted, that anybody at home thinks the market is being supported because then they'll act that way. And again, as we see here with Japan is a pretty clear example that no, there's no, there's really nothing behind the myth. They don't actually support the market. They buy some, some shares and they can buy more shares if they want to, but that's not the same thing as supporting a market. Where that becomes important, I mean, obviously if you're, if you're a Japanese stockholder, that was an important episode, but what we're thinking about and we're thinking ahead to is this Federal Reserve promise to buy corporate bonds and support the corporate bond market if it starts to go bidless and illiquid like it did last month, which last month, you know, I think it was the corporate bonds and the junk bonds that were used as collateral repo. I think that was the most important part of what created this global downdraft that showed up in Japanese stocks as well as American stocks and other bonds. So the Federal Reserve saying that it is supporting the corporate bond market with, with bond purchases is not the same thing as it actually supporting that market. It's putting that out there so that investors will be reassured and they will try to front run the Fed because they're so powerful. And boy, you better believe that, you know, you don't fight the Fed. And if they're buying corporate bonds, it's absolutely safe to be in corporate bonds. And it's, it's all crap. It's all myth. There's no reality behind it. It's a myth at the central bank to try to get financial markets up to create this somewhat illusory, untangible, untangible wealth effect that would then actually filter into what really matters, which is the real economy. And oil, as one indication of the real economy, is having none of that. They're saying, forget it, the long term, uh, all these actions, all this alphabet soup, it's not happening, it's not working in the real economy which is what I'm most interested about. And bonds yeah. too, right? That's the yield curve. And, that, and that's, you know, that's, that's what we see in all these other financial indications. The fact that uh, all of these curves have collapsed down to nothing, that we're staring at record low treasury yields, record high treasury prices all over, you know, capitulations of bond kings, all these kinds of things. Everybody, you know, the financial media in particular is trying to reconcile these things with this myth worldview of the central banking control and so the financial media is trying to say that all of these things are happening because the Fed is doing something or the Bank of Japan is doing something or the European Central Bank is doing something, when in reality, it's the other way around. They're being forced into, the central banks are being forced into these things because they're not effective, because there's more myth than reality. The reality of the, the global monetary situation is far, far more complicated than we're led to believe. We think we're so sophisticated here on the, in the 21st century that we look back and we kind of scoff at those myths of the ancient Greeks and the ancient Chinese and 
But yeah, we, we have our own myths as well, and we're susceptible to them, uh, though we may not recognize it. Jeff, everyone can find you at Alhambra Investments, at Real Clear Markets, on YouTube, at the Alhambra Investments uh, YouTube channel, on Twitter, at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP. Do you have any final parting words for the audience? Well, I know, Emil, you, you flagged a tweet from, I think it was, uh, who was it? Um, Mr. Blank. Help me out here. Blankfein. Oh, yes, that's right. That's who it was. It, you know, he had, he's, he's basically said he had no idea why anybody would lend the U.S. government 10 years at points, you know, 60 basis points yield. And it's, it's an amazing statement for him to say as, as CEO of a major bank because, you know, in all likelihood, his major bank is one of the biggest owners of those of those treasury securities, and it's you know it gets it gets back to the to the idea of myth and reality. And the reality is, you know, a bank CEO doesn't necessarily know much about what the bank is doing. He's a manager of people, not a manager of banks. And you know, like Jamie Dimon or, or any of those, you know, Jamie Dimon back in 2018 saying interest rates are going to go sky high too. That didn't prove to be correct. And J.P. Morgan, which Jamie Dimon was CEO of that particular bank, was one of the largest buyers of U.S. Treasuries into that rally or into, the, you know, when it was supposed to be selling off. So, you know, the myth versus reality extends to the, at least to the top layers of the bank, uh, these various banks, as well as throughout the entire central banking system. There's a great quote by uh, John Kenneth Galbraith in uh, A Short History of Financial Euphoria. There's a couple of paragraphs. We don't have time for me to read it all, so let me just go to the, the punchline of this Canadian wordsmith, and the, here it is. The rule will often be here reiterated, financial genius is before the fall. Jeff, I'll talk to you next week. Thank you very much for your time. Take care, Emil.